I want to try and convince you by the end of this afternoon, my prayer and my hope is that actually it will be a wonderful joy to us that Jesus really knows what we're like. I hope that we'll find that liberating rather than scary. Um, But why don't we pray? We're going to ask that God would help us. Uh, We actually believe very strongly as a church that when God's word is opened, his Holy Spirit is at work and we hear God's voice as we study his word together. That's what we believe. That's what we think we're doing now. That's why we take it seriously. So we're going to pray and then uh, we're going to dig into this passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace that we've been singing about. Thank you for your amazing provision of all that we need. And thank you for the provision of this word this afternoon. We ask you to speak to us, help us to listen. And we ask that you'd really bring this passage alive. Would your spirit breathe life into our hearts, we pray, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Great. Uh, there's plenty of pens around. It may, if, you, if you're struggling to stay awake, as I know, sometimes that can happen. Uh, uh, I was at a conference yesterday, and I had to take notes to keep me awake. So if, if sometimes it helps to scribble some stuff down. There's space on the back of your sheets. Uh, but we're going to have a look into this. We've been working our way through this chunk of Mark. And just before we get into chapter 7, can you just look at Mark chapter 8, verse 15? It's on the same page. You don't have to turn anywhere. But I, I want to show you, I think this is a key verse for understanding this bit of Mark. Mark chapter uh, 8, verse 15. It says, Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. In this chunk of Mark's gospel, Jesus is warning, particularly his disciples, his closest friends, he's warning them about a really big danger. And he describes it as being the yeast Yeast is, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, yeast is stuff that spreads, it gets everywhere, starts small, but gets big. The yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. So it's like, okay, Jesus says that I've got two case studies for you that I want you to think about. I want you to think about Herod and I want you to think about the Pharisees. Now, Herod came up in chapter 6. We've done him. We saw him a couple of weeks ago. If you weren't here, basic stories. He nicked his brother's wife. He refused to listen to God's word and then he chopped someone's head off. Herod is what we might call a bad boy. Here's what we might call an obvious sinner. It's very obvious. Everyone can see it. He's a nasty piece of work. But the second case study that Jesus... So he says, here's Herod. He's the first one. Some people rebel against God by being really, really bad. But here's the second case study. And it's the Pharisees. And when we get to the Pharisees, it's very interesting because the Pharisees are the absolute opposite of Herod. They are very, very good. These are the good boys. These are the ones who keep the rules. These are the ones who are respected, who are honoured, who are looked up to in, in society. But Jesus says, watch out for them. Okay, Jesus, we get that we have to watch out for Herod. Nasty piece of work, but the Pharisees, seriously? Jesus says, yes, watch out for that too. Because there are two ways to rebel against God. There are two ways. One is to be very, very bad, and the other is to be very, very good. And they can both be an act of rebellion against God. That's what we're going to see. Now, if you're confused at that point, don't panic. I'm going to explain this. I'm going to try and show you that's what's going on. So we've got these 
Just have a look down at chapter 7. You can see how it starts. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Now, that's quite ominous. Jerusalem is kind of down in the south. Jesus is still up in the north of the country. Jerusalem is like the capital city. It's the heart of, of Judaism, of religion in, the, in the, uh, the nation. And you can imagine in Jerusalem, they get this news. There's some bloke up north. And this makes us nervous, doesn't it, in, in London? You know, we hear about people up north, and we're always suspicious of northerners. Well, here's a northerner. He's up north, and he's clearly making a bit of a stir. People are talking about him. He's teaching some weird stuff. And so the southerners do what southerners always do, is be very suspicious and rude. And they send this delegation up to see Jesus. Now, I don't think they've come really with the openest of minds. In fact, they've come to check out who this bloke is and to nail him for what he's saying. They've come to check him out. They want to expose him. But you know what happens? Jesus exposes them. Jesus exposes what's really going on. It is a devastating critique of the human heart. As they come to say, oh, we don't like you, Jesus says, well, let me show you what's happening inside you. It's it's an incredible passage. And in particular, he nails this thing that the human heart would pride itself on being very, very good. Look how good I am. It's like Jack Horner. You remember Jack Horner? No. Little Jack Horner sat in a corner. Do you really not know this? How can you not know this? What's wrong with the education system in our country today? Little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating some... What pie? Humble. Plum pie. I don't know. He stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum. It must have been a plum pie because he pulled out a plum. He stu- Some people are completely lost. Me and you, Trevor, having a lovely time. Stuck in his thumb, pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I? That was the point. The point was, that's the default human position. I stick in my thumb into life and I pull out a plum and I say, what a good boy I am. I'm good. And Jesus is going to show us. And and as we look at Jesus' teaching, he's going to deepen our understanding of what the Bible means when it talks about sin. Now, sin is not a particularly popular word in our culture. It's not something that that politicians talk a lot about, doesn't get a lot of votes. It's not a particularly sexy topic to, to talk about. But Jesus wants us to understand what the Bible really means by sin. Because getting clear... What sin means will help us to get clear who Jesus is. If you have a small view of sin, you will have a small view of Jesus. And the more we can see what the Bible means by sin, the more we will see Jesus. So we're going to have a think about this uh, this idea. And one of the big images that the Bible uses to talk about sin is the idea of uncleanness. You see, ah, right. If I say sin in our culture, people either think it's the sort of, you know, they're doing something a little bit naughty that's quite nice. Having some ice cream, having a bar of chocolate, stamping on an ant, that kind of thing. Or they might think that sin is like the really, really bad people who do horrible things. But there's this big gap in the middle between the really, really bad and the things that aren't really (laughs) sin at all. Unless you're an ant, of course. But here's the... The Bible has a much 
bigger view of what sin really means. And one of its big images is the idea of being unclean, uncleanness. You'll have noticed that language of being defiled comes up a lot in what Vicky read to us earlier on. So look, here's here's some words from, um, this is from the Old Testament, from a book called Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 2. And it says this, uh, it's chapter 3. It says this, then he showed me, and Zechariah is having a vision, right? Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. It's quite a powerful image, isn't it? The image of being filthy, of being dirty, of feeling, of feeling unfit or unacceptable. It's one of the big images the Bible uses for sin. So here's the deal, right? God is perfectly pure. He's perfectly clean in every way. There is not one tiny little spot of dirt on him. There's nothing to spoil him or taint him or to contaminate or pollute him. There's nothing. He is utter purity. Here's me. Not so much. And the problem is, of course, if God is that pure, I can't go anywhere near him. It'd be like coming straight from the rugby field, like the guys off the Six Nations yesterday, uh, coming straight off the pitch in all their filthy dirtiness and going to the intensive care unit of the hospital and going in saying, I've just come to see the patients. But you can't come in here. You're unclean. And that's, that's the deal. God is this God of cleanness and purity. And sin is something that defiles or makes us unclean. Well, have a look at this one. Turn to Psalm 24. Let's just get this picture in our heads. Psalm 24. If you don't know where Psalms is, it's right in the middle of the Bible. Open the Bible up in the middle and you'll be at Psalms. And if you're not, close it and do it again until you find Psalms. Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 3. Here's a great question. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? In other words, who can walk into God's presence? Who can be God's friend? Who can stand with God? Here's the answer. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. See, cleanness is what you need to approach God. Uncleanness makes you unfit for God. Now, I wonder this afternoon, as we sit here, let me ask you this question simply. Do you think you're clean? I reckon many people in our culture feel deeply dirty. I think dirty is a very common word that people would use to describe themselves. When people who are very aware of things they've done wrong feel ashamed, they feel a sense of uncleanness. Perhaps some people sitting here this afternoon, you know that feeling. Perhaps for some of you, that's a very real thing. It may be stuff that's been done to you or it may be stuff that you've done and it's left you feeling dirty. There will be some people here this afternoon who who that is a profoundly accurate description of how you feel this afternoon. And can I say, if that's you, I have some awesomely wonderful news for you this afternoon. Keep listening. There is some amazing news. 
But others of us perhaps struggle to really believe that we are unclean. Others of us, we think, I think I'm all right. Well, we need to listen carefully to what Jesus says. We need to listen. That is the issue at the stake in Mark chapter 1. We have this problem. It's an uncleanness problem. I've got three points I want to take you through to show you all this stuff. And we're just going to work our way through this passage. And the first one, here's the first thing. We have to understand that sin, or being unclean, is a relational problem. It's a relational problem, not a behaviour problem. Okay, that's verses 1 to 7. It's relational, not behavioural. Right, I I got asked a question this week, uh, last week, by someone. How would you answer this? I was asked uh, by someone, how can it be right that someone who's lived a really, really good life, someone who's done really good things, someone who's kind and generous and patient and lovely, how can it be right that they would be punished by God? (laughs) Doesn't make sense. How can that be right? I wonder how you'd answer that. It's a tough question, isn't it? Because it doesn't doesn't feel right to us. Okay, let me explain like this. Imagine that uh, I decided I was going to enter the perfect husband competition. And uh, I I downloaded the application form from the internet so that I could make my application to argue why I was the greatest husband in the world. And, uh, you know, I filled in some of my details. And then I had, it, there was a list, a list of things. I thought, this is great, because when I first got married, I resolved to be the perfect husband. I had a number of resolutions that I, were important to me that I thought would make me the perfect husband. And they were things like I, was, uh, I resolved to buy my wife flowers every single week. Uh, I resolved to, uh, to do the cleaning. I resolved to do all the cooking. Uh, I resolved to make sure that there was always... Uh, lots of money in the bank, and I resolved to make sure that uh, I stayed nice and fit and healthy, as you, you see today. And uh, so I had, these, I had these five resolutions, and this was going to make me the perfect husband. It was, you know, I really loved my wife. I wanted to be the perfect husband for her. So I fill in this uh, application form, and uh, I say, th- these are the five things that I think make me the perfect husband. And... Uh, and they're very impressed, as you would expect. They think, this is amazing. And I get shortlisted uh, to, to go through to the next round. And in the next round, they interview my wife. And they say to her, does he really do all these things? And she said, yes, he does. But then she said, but he never ever speaks to me. She said, he ignores me all the time. Now, am I a good husband? Do you see what happens, right? What happens is... Thanks, Andy. You're fine, you can leave it if you want. Running repairs. You see, here's the thing, right? If it's just focused on what I do, if it's just focused on my behaviour, then I am a perfect husband. But it's not... It's a relational thing. 
And if I spend my whole life ignoring my wife while I'm buying flowers for her and trying to run and clean the house and do all this stuff, but I'm ignoring her, I'm not a good husband. It doesn't matter how good my behavior is. But because we think sin is about behavior, we go, but I've done all this stuff. But God is standing over here saying, but you're ignoring me. I love you. I made you. In Proverbs, there's this wonderful verse that says, my son, give me your heart. And that's, that is why sin is our problem. It is a relational problem. Not a behavioral problem. And that is what Jesus is doing here. So he's saying to these guys, let's, let's have a look at this, right? These Jews, they come up from Jerusalem and they see some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled. That is, unwashed. Now, just, that's, that's not a hygiene thing. That's not a kind of all the, this is a great proof text for parents. You know, kids, wash your hands before you eat. This is a ceremonial thing, okay? This is a ceremonial thing. And this ceremony of washing their hands was very important to them. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. They do lots of stuff. They're doing all this stuff. And it makes them really critical of Jesus' disciples, doesn't it? So they point at Jesus' disciples and they go, why don't your disciples do it? That's what human religion does. Very critical. Just like me. If I was that that kind of perfect husband scenario, I could be very critical of other, you don't buy your wife flowers? Ever? I buy my wife flowers every week. Very judgmental, yes? And they're doing all of this behavioral stuff, this outside stuff. Look what Jesus says to them in verse 6. It is like a if, you, if you've got an idea in your head that Jesus is some kind of meek and mild, wimpy bloke, look at this, verse 6. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Can't you hear it? That's the... That's the husband saying, that's the wife saying, but he ignores me. This is God saying, these people, they say, they say they're doing all this stuff for me, but they're not. They ignore me. And that's the issue. We have to define sin as a relational thing, not a behavioral thing. I'm unclean, not because of the stuff I do, but because I've ignored and I'm not listening to the God who made me. And that can be true with very, very religious people who do good stuff. Now this is really important, okay? It's really important that we define sin properly. Because if we say that sin is being naughty, what is the solution? The solution is to try harder to be nice. Which is what most religions are about, aren't they? It's about saying, come on, you've done some bad stuff, try and be nice. If I define, if I want to try and show someone that that they're a sinner, and I say, you've broken God's rules, you've broken God's rules, that's true, but it's not the whole story. 
And the danger is that if we simply define sin as being the bad things I do, then we'll misunderstand what Jesus came to do. Sin at its root is that I have ignored the God who made me. It's relational. Here's the second big thing. This is from verse 18 now to, th- to 13. 8 to 13. So the first point is we have a relational problem. That's the problem. The second big thing is we have an authority problem. So have the, deci- have the Pharisees managed to get into this mess? Well, let's have a look at the, uh, the next bit. And Jesus is crystal clear. I mean, there's no missing it. He says it three times, and it's all about how they've treated God's word. You see that? Let's have a look at verse 8. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Verse 9. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Verse 11. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and you do many things like that. You can hear it again and again, right? They've rejected the word of God and have settled for human tradition. Two sources of authority, God's word and the human word. What God says and what I think. And they've rejected God's word and replaced it with their own thinking. In other words, they say, now this is the life acceptable to me. This is what I think is acceptable. This is what I think is clean. But you see, God has given us commands. God is not silent. He's spoken. He's not left us in the dark about how he wants us to live, about what pleases him. He has spoken. He has spelled it out. Now look, can I, let's, let's push this a bit, okay? There's something quite subtle here. Go back to the marriage thing, the perfect husband thing. When I started out in my marriage with my five resolutions... Were they okay? Yeah, actually they were. They were sort of a, it was a kind of, I love my wife and I want to show it in these five ways. And so kind of the love for my wife, that was kind of the most important thing and these five things were an expression. What's happened is that over time it has shifted that this has been pushed down. The love for my wife has been pushed down and now the five things become the thing. Can you see how that could happen? How actually what starts out as a good thing. So most of these, I think genuinely lots of these laws that the Jews came up with, they were for good reasons. God's given his law. God has given his Ten Commandments and he's given a whole range of laws in the Old Testament about how they're to live. And the people said, we so want to keep it. We so want to keep it. We're going to put fences in the way. We're going to put all sorts of other laws in place to make sure that... So, for example, the the fifth commandment is... uh, No, the fourth commandment is you shall honour the Sabbath day. Take one day off in seven. That's God's good command. And the people are like, we so want to keep that. We're going to put lots of rules in place. So, there's lots of rules about what they could and couldn't do. So, you can't walk too far and you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do that. Now, to start with, that's a good desire because they want to keep the command. But what happens is that the command, they let go of it. And it just becomes about the rules. 
They let go of the central word of God and it all becomes about their ideas and what they think. Jesus gives a specific example of it here. Yeah, this, this um, verse 9 is pretty ironic. It says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God. It's like you have a sneaky, clever way of getting around God's commands. So here it is. Fifth commandment is honour your father and mother. That's what Moses said. And you must not, uh, anyone who curses his mother or father will be put to death. <laughs> That's pretty clear. But over time, what the Jews have done is they've introduced other laws which in some ways were about having things devoted to God. That's a good thing, to devote stuff to God. But what they've done is that law has become so important to them that they've let go of that law. And they said, oh, hang on a second. If I devote my house to God, I get to keep living in it and then I don't have to give any to my mum and dad because it's devoted to God. Genius. And what they've done is they've, this, these commands which started out okay, these traditions, there's nothing wrong with them particularly. They've become more important than the word of God. And God's word has been pushed out. God's word has been let go of. And the issue becomes, what's your authority? Now, we all have a problem with authority, right? I think pretty much all of us have a problem. No one gets excited about rules, really, do they? I mean, no one walks along going, you know, at school. It would be weird when it's school, if you like... If you said to your mates, listen, I've just found the school rule book. This is amazing. Come here. Come around to my house tonight. We'll read it together. They would think you're really weird. Look, it says I have to walk on the left-hand side of the corridor. Isn't that terrific? Look at me walking down the left-hand side of the corridor. This is wonderful. Or like when you're driving and you see a 30-mile-an-hour speed limit sign. No one goes, oh, terrific. Love it. 20? Yes, bring it on. We don't want it. We, we don't like authority. When someone tells you to do something, when someone gives you a command, even if you're grown up enough not to say it out loud, what are you thinking in your head? When someone says, uh, go and do this, you're thinking, why should I? Why should I? When you're a kid, you actually say it. And you fold your arms and you go, why should I? And what is the worst answer to that question? What is it? Everybody hates this answer, don't they? What's the worst answer? Because I say so. Now, here's the deal, right? That shows how much we hate authority. Because I don't want anyone to tell me what to do and to say, it's because I say so. So I might, so if Trevor told me to go and do something and I say to him, well, why should I? And Trevor says, well, because if you do, I'll give you £5,000. I'm like, fair play. (laughs) Off I go. If Trevor says, no, you should do it because I say so, I'd be like, no, shut up, I'm not doing that. (laughs) And not Trevor, obviously, because I submit and respect greatly his authority. But, you know, you get the point. Now, here is the thing. 
God's word, the commands of God that he has spoken, that he spoke through men like Moses, that are written down in this book, the Bible. Here they are, written down for us. It's not difficult. They're all here. God has spoken. And this word is to have authority. And sin or uncleanness is an authority problem. It's saying, you don't get to tell me what to do. Can I politely and humbly and gently suggest that if God made you, he does have the right to tell you what to do. He does. If there's no God, and if we're just a random chance bumping thing of atoms who've come together by the blind forces of nature, no one has the right to tell me what to do. I'll fight for my rights, and you fight for your rights, and we'll see who's the strongest, and we'll have a miserable time doing it. That's what I see in the world. That's where you go if there is no God. But if there is a God, and if there's a God who's loving, and a God who's good, and a God who's pure, and uncontaminated, and unpolluted, and he says, here are my commands. He has the right So let me, let, let me, let's push this. Come on, right? Let's really push this and think. Because I think this is very challenging. If I only obey with God, if I only obey God when I agree with him, whose authority am I really submitting to? Okay, God, I'll do everything you say as long as I agree with it. It's easy to submit to authority when they tell you to do something you agree with. The challenge to authority, the true challenge comes when God's word tells me to do something that I don't agree with. Will I then obey him? That's where our, you can feel it, can't you feel it? It freaks us out. We think, no, 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 this is really dangerous. I don't want to do that because I might miss out or I might screw up or you know, everything might go wrong or God might ask me to do something like go overseas and tell people about Jesus there. I don't want to do that. You see, you see how it, we have an authority problem. And the Pharisees, they said, boy, that's scary. Oh, look, here's a rule. This is nicer. Let's stick with it. And you know, it's very, it's very subtle, this shift from God's authority to human authority. Look, let me just give you a couple of examples. Um, I'm going out tonight uh, clubbing, and I'm going to go after the church, uh, and I'm going to go to Ministry of Sound, and I'm going to get drunk. But the reason I'm going to do it is because there are people there who need to hear about Jesus. You see, it's quite subtle, isn't it? How we might even twist something good and use it to excuse my bad behaviour. I'm going to... You can probably come up with other examples. And we've got to be very careful that we say, no, God's word is true. God says very clearly, Ephesians chapter 5, do not get drunk. 
clear as day. We have a choice. Now, of course, you say, hang on a second. What happened to all the nice marriage loving stuff? It's all gone a bit kind of like, obedience, obedience. You know what Jesus says? If you love me, you will obey me. Obedience and love go together. How do you show you love God? By obeying his word. Now, at this point, remember, Jesus is exposing what's going on in the Pharisees' hearts. He says you have a... Um, you have a relational problem, you're ignoring God, you have an authority problem, you've rejected his word and we are in danger of doing that all the time, saying no to God's word and the last thing uh, is we have an inside-out problem. Okay, let's just get the last little bit. We have an inside-out problem, verse 14. Uh, Most people assume that the problem is out there. I'm basically good and I've got to stop sin getting in. Yeah, it's kind of an out there thing. Jesus says it's the other way around. So look, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. Basic biology. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. That is a monumental statement, which we haven't really got time to deal with. I mean, we go, oh, that's nice, all foods are clean. For the Jews, that means you, you did what? There was hundreds of laws and things about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat, good things. But all of those were to point to the bigger problem of the heart. I and mean, here's what had happened, okay? God gave all these laws like, okay, you mustn't eat prawns. Let's do that. No prawns. Prawns? Oh, shame. Why did God say you can't eat prawns? Not because he's got a problem with prawns, but because he's got a problem with your heart. And he wants you to understand there's something about your heart that's wrong. So he says there's going to be this whole unclean thing, which I'm going to make, which you're going to understand when Jesus comes. It's all about the heart. Here's what the Pharisees have done. They've gone, prawns, prawns. It's all about the prawns. Don't eat prawns, lads. We'll be all right. Jesus, no, that's not the point. That was never the point. The point of the prawns and the, and the pigs and the rock badges and all the stuff that you're not allowed to eat. It's that it was showing you that there is a problem with your heart. It was like the only visible way God could say that you have to understand there's a difference between clean and unclean. You've got to work this out because when Jesus comes, you've got to know it. And at this point, he says, so forget the food laws. They were given for a time to teach you, but that's not what it's about now. Because actually the problem is inside and just look at verse 20 he went on what comes out of a person is what defiles him it is from within out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come sexual immorality theft murder adultery greed malice deceit lewdness envy slander arrogance and folly all these evils come from inside and defile a person jesus isn't fooled he's not fooled by the outward show He says, the problem's the heart. If I go and lock myself in a room on my own for the rest of my life, it won't help. I will still be an adulterer and a liar and a murderer. Because it's not out there, it's here. My heart is defiled. 
Now, for some of you, as I said at the start, some of you know this, and I don't want to bash this because I don't want to. He- I don't want you to hear me bashing you, because if you know this is true of you, then hold on. I'm tra- I'm talking to the ones particularly who basically don't feel it, who don't see it, who go through life basically thinking, yeah. I'm- some people have been Christians for years. I've done this. Been Christians for years, and sometimes I still don't really feel how unclean I am. I begin to think, oh yes, sin. Yes, dear God, I've done some naughty things. Really, really sorry. Sorry for swearing at that driver the other day, and sorry for doing other stuff. I don't feel actually what's going on in my heart. This stuff that comes out. This junk that comes out of my mouth these thoughts that come into my head they come from my heart my heart is defiled I want to take you back to um, to Zechariah to Joshua I want you to picture him okay really try hard I want you to picture him standing before the Lord the angel of the Lord dressed in filthy clothes. How is he standing? In your picture, picture him in your mind. How is he standing? Has he got his head up or has he bowed down? How is he feeling? Is his heart beating? Is he looking into the eyes of God or has he got his head, eyes firmly fixed on the ground? I want to show you the very next verse. Look what happens next. Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Can't you picture it? Can't you imagine the the filth, the weight of those filthy clothes being taken off and clean garments being put on? Can't you picture his head lifting up? And his face breaking into a smile. As suddenly he knows that he can stand before God and be accepted. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? This man can. Because God has made his heart clean. And that, that my friends, that is the gospel. That is what Jesus came to do. And the more you see the uncleanness of your heart, the more you will treasure Jesus. I want to picture another man. A man this time who was filthy with leprosy, who comes to Jesus, he falls face down before Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You know what Jesus does? He doesn't just say, be clean. He touches the man. He touches the man and says, be clean. And as he touches the man, Jesus identifies with the uncleanness. The uncleanness of that man is transferred to Jesus. Jesus takes the uncleanness of that man. The filth, it's placed on Jesus. And the man is made clean. Because in that touch, the man is united to Christ. And you know, that is the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came to make you clean. 
So that if you will come and fall before him this afternoon and say, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus will reach out to you and he will identify with you. You will be united to him. He will take your uncleanness upon himself and he will make you clean. And that man with leprosy, as he stood up, can't you picture him? Beaming from ear to ear. Clean. This afternoon, I wonder if you think you're acceptable to God. This afternoon, I wonder if you feel unclean. Please, if you're one of those people who feel unclean, it may even be this afternoon. You may have been a Christian for a long time, but there's something in your past. There's something that makes you feel dirty. Perhaps this afternoon, Jesus has brought you to church because he wants to deal with it. And he wants to say to you once and for all, it's done. It's finished. It's gone. You're clean. Will you trust him? Even this afternoon, will you let him deal with it? Maybe you want to come to him for the first time. Say, I I recognize this is true. But maybe for most of us, for many of us, the reality is that we identify with the Pharisees. I think I do go through the rituals, but my heart is far from God. And this afternoon, Jesus says, come back. Come back. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we read a passage like this and it, it does convict us. Father, we think of what comes out of our own hearts. The sexual immorality, the theft, the murder, the adultery, the greed, the malice and spitefulness, the lies that we tell, the envy, the arrogance, the, just the way we treat others. Father, this stuff comes from inside us. And Lord, we are uh, uh, unclean. And yet, Jesus, you came to make us clean. Oh, please, Lord Jesus, help us to see we have a relational problem, but to see that we can turn back to be in relationship with you. Help us to see we have an authority problem, but here is true, we can find and submit to a true authority. And help us to see that you're the one who can fix our inside. Help us to trust you. Amen. We're going to sing together and respond. Um, We're going to sing of Jesus. Uh, The chorus says, Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Let's stand, let's enjoy singing. And if you know this is true, if you know you're clean, we should really sing with joy uh, of what he's done. Let's stand, let's praise him.